You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com All right, welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan. And here we are on this Monday evening edition of the broadcast. And tonight we are talking once again to Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com. Once again, for people who haven't checked out his website, I suggest you do so. And while there, subscribe to his podcast, which is always filled with very interesting information on the geopolitical news that you're definitely not getting from the mainstream media. So, Eric, thank you once again for joining us here on the program tonight. Thanks for having me back, James. Well, let's get straight into it, Eric. I understand that uh, that you have been working on, on Syria, as always, as it continues to develop. And, of course, we've got the, the Battle of Aleppo that's uh, still t- very much dominating the headlines on Syria. Let's talk about the latest in Syria. Well, the latest, I mean, the, the very latest that I saw just on my screen about an hour ago was news that of a possible defection of the Syrian prime minister. Um, and if that's to be believed, and that is, of course, a big if, because I think we always need to be somewhat critical in when they talk about defections, uh, whether they're real defections, what kind of arm twisting was going on behind the scenes, what sort of incentives were offered. It's impossible to know. But the news was that the uh, the Syrian prime minister has defected to the opposition. And this, of course, would be a major propaganda blow. I think it's somewhat questionable how much it would actually affect the Assad regime itself. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he could be replaced with someone else. But in any case, it is still major news, and that's something to be followed. But taken from a slightly broader perspective, Syria has... I mean, it's, it's of course front and center in world geopolitical news, but, uh, Syria has changed, I would say, in the last week or two. We have now transitioned away from constant talking about the unarmed, innocent opposition, and now it's pretty much an understood fact, even in the mainstream media, that what we're looking at is an armed conflict between the Syrian military and armed opposition, and it is also now an understood fact in the mainstream media that much, if not most, of this opposition is foreign based. Based, that it has entered into Syria, much of it through Turkey or through Lebanon or through Jordan or Iraq. But this is a, this is an important moment, I think, and I've been talking about this with a number of people. That the fact that the mainstream media can no longer paint this as purely Assad killing innocent civilians. I, of course, am quoting all of that there, but um, they can't paint it that way anymore. Therefore, this is a very different type of conflict. Um, So I think that's the first point that I would mention. The second point is, of course, that um, what we're seeing in the United Nations, major developments in the United Nations, of course, the first being Kofi Annan resigning. um, And I'm sure you probably have an interesting take on this, James. But uh, with regard to Kofi Annan, I think it became apparent certainly in the last week, but definitely even going farther back than that, that this whole thing was essentially staged. The whole uh, in- incorporation of Kofi Annan, the plan, the subversion of that plan, the, re- the reworking of it, and then the final collapse of it seems to have all been staged as really just preparation for an attempted military uh, intervention, either through al-Qaeda proxies or through NATO proper. And um, the fact that he resigned recently, I think, illustrates that even further. 
Moreover, this vote at the UN General Assembly, a non-binding vote. Um, it's interesting because I just, on my podcast, my most recent episode, which, which should be up by tomorrow, um, I was talking about the fact that the mainstream media is painting this as if Syria is isolated in the world. Oh, the vote is 133 to 22 or whatever it was with, you know, 31 abstentions. But think about that. Russia, China, India, Pakistan, Iran, Venezuela, many more countries on that list that are voting no. Over or half the world's name. population exactly. has been pointed out. Exactly. So the majority of the world is really against it, but uh, but still they can attempt to portray it because, uh, of course, the U.S. managed to strong arm enough countries into voting for it. Well, let's, uh, let's hold it right there. Lots of information to go through and lots of time to do it, but we're running up against our first break. So let's take a short breather. We'll be right back with Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com right after these messages. All right, welcome back to the pro- bo- broadcast tonight, friends. It's James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com, and we're starting off in Syria where things are still very heated and very interesting. And just before the break there, we were going over the recent UN General Assembly vote that uh, seeks to uh, urge the UN Security Council to take action on Syria, by which, of course, they mean to carve up the uh, the Syrian population and the country in the name of the imperial conquest that so many people want to see going on there. So, uh, Eric, let's let's continue talking about what's happening in Syria. And as you noted in that first segment, there has been a huge title shift in the uh, reporting on Syria, where finally the Free Syrian Army is not some loving, peace-hold, hand-holding uh, army army of uh, protesters with picket signs they're finally admitting the reality that these are armed goons that are out to commit terrorist acts and i think part of the turning of that tide was the footage that uh, as far as i know was first released on rt i'm not sure exactly where it uh, where it came from but it showed a uh, an, a, an absolute disgusting uh, atrocity a war crime being committed by the fsa against uh, syrian uh, syrians in aleppo uh, basically lining them up against the wall and uh, shooting them non-stop for 40 seconds quite a disgusting scene uh, uh, what is the real ter- reason for the turning of this tide and how do you think this is going to affect things going forward well, I think that there's a couple of reasons. Uh, so first, let's 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 focus on what you just mentioned, and that is the obvious war crimes and atrocities that are being carried out in the name of the so-called opposition. We had a very interesting report. I guess it was about a week, a week and a half ago, from inside Syria. One of these Western journalists who quote-unquote, has been embedded with the opposition. Of course, that is to say embedded with al-Qaeda, embedded with terrorists, but that is the way that it's being portrayed. And what what he described, um, and this I'm talking about Ian Pinnell of the BBC, what he described was essentially, I mean, not essentially, exactly, summary executions of innocent civilians, no trial, nothing. He was there, he witnessed it firsthand, and then lied about it. In the, in the articles for the BBC, he did not call it summary executions. He said summary dispatches. Now, what exactly is a summary dispatch? This is an important piece of propaganda that we all need to be aware of because the way in which this is being framed in the Western media is that these are, quote-unquote, suspected militia, suspected Shabia militants. That is code word. That is Western propaganda code word for innocent civilians, 
Okay, so um, that, I think, has been exposed now in many different places and in many different forms. And so that's one way in which I think the propaganda matrix has shifted a bit with regard to Syria. Another thing that I point out is the fact that now... Sorry, that, just, uh, just before we move on from that point, I think it's important to to uh, to flesh that out a little for people who don't know about how this has been working, because Shabia has been this code word that they've really instituted, which is kind of this remarkable rhetorical flourish, because it uh, we all we all know how uh, governments can be delegitimized in the eyes of the public by using rhetoric like uh, regime, etc., to refer to the the government, and and by that uh, that rhetorical flourish, it becomes this evil entity. But with with the Shabia concept. What they've done is they've been able to take average citizens and just uh, citizens who are in support of the government and make them into seemingly menacing enemy type combatants. So let's talk a little bit about that that phrase and how it's been deployed. Well, essentially, the function of it is to find a way to make anyone who is pro-Assad that is not in the military into a militant, into fair game. And the way in which they do that is by using the word Shabia, which is these pro-Assad militias, which have been, you know, much touted in the Western media. But to say that someone is a suspected Shabia militant is to say that they are a civilian. They are not in the Syrian military, nor are they with the opposition. Therefore, they're a civilian, and yet you use the phrase Shabia militant or possible Shabia militant, and you can legitimize any kind of atrocity against them that you want. And this is sort of the subtle twist, the, the propaganda um, twist that is being put on this entire issue. So Ian Pinnell by Nuremberg standards, is complicit in a war crime. He is facilitating this through propaganda, and there were uh, Germans who hung for that at Nuremberg. So um, I think that's an important point, and that's something that um, you know I've been talking about on my program. I know others have as well. We all need to keep that in mind because I think Syria is going to be instructive for a lot of reasons. We're going to see much uh, an ugly side of the imperial face that we don't often see, and the propaganda aspect of it I think is going to be more educational perhaps than anything to people watching around the world. This is going to expose the way in which the BBC or Fox News or CNN or whoever it is, the way in which they do what they do. And that is condition people to think a certain way, thereby legitimizing the behavior of the imperialists of the ruling class. All right. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail your second point that you were making before I, I cut in there. So no, that's all right. So so um, the other the other thing that we've seen um, is a very important distinction that is now being made in the mainstream media, and that is a distinction between free Syrian army and al-Qaeda extremists. And what they're now saying, because they want people to believe that they're not working together, that they're not the same entity. So what they're doing is now they're saying, oh, if you don't support the Free Syrian Army, well, then the support is going to go to al-Qaeda. If we don't support the rebels, if we don't support the armed terrorists, then al-Qaeda is going to dominate Syria. This is, of course, a complete farce because they really are the same thing and or have been working together since the very beginning, both under the umbrella of the West under the umbrella of NATO. But that's an important propaganda point as well. So what we're seeing while the mainstream media is becoming more forthcoming about the opposition, they're also twisting the truth, uh, um, sort of this subtle shift, which is changing the reality for a lot of people around the world who are reading this stuff. 
No, no, that's exactly right. Um, that is a, a very interesting shift. So, so let's talk about some of the other players that are involved here, because obviously this is not just involving Syria. This is something that is international and is being supported internationally, uh, quite openly and admittedly by Saudi Arabia and Qatar, uh, amongst others. And let's talk about their position in this, especially given that they are uh, suppressing their own uh, uprising at home, although you wouldn't know that from reading any of the Western mainstream media. Well, exactly. And that's that's actually a couple of things to talk about. But before we even talk about Saudi Arabia and Qatar, can, if I could, I want to just briefly mention Turkey, because the role that Turkey is playing is really significant. Turkey is sort of the repository for the support, the armed support, the terrorists that are coming from Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Now, um, I wrote an article a few days ago called um, Choosing Hegemony, NATO, Turkey, and the Path to War. And the, what I talk about in the article is really that same point, that Turkey has chosen through very calculated political decision to make themselves into NATO's attack dog. And that really is a devastating turn of events for Turkey, a country which for decades has prided itself on this, what what they called the zero problems policy. That is that they would deal with all of their neighbors, whether they were Israel or Syria or Jordan or Iraq or whoever. That was a longstanding policy. And now they've shifted to this policy known as smart power. And the smart power Erdogan Davutoglu policy is basically, we want to be the regional hegemon. We want to exert dominance over this particular region. And this is how they think they're going to do it. Now we had a report in Reuters, this Adana base, and this is one that people want to know. The Adana base is a terrorist facility, a jihadi terrorist camp that is on the grounds of the Incherlik base. So you want to look for a tangible connection between the U.S., NATO, and the Al-Qaeda militants. Well, there it is. It exists on the base at Adana. They're operating it through Turkish intelligence and sending those militants into Syria. Now, Coming back to Saudi Arabia and Qatar, though, because that's the important uh, connection as well. Saudi Arabia and Qatar are not simply funding these terrorists. They're not simply uh, the, 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 the backers of these networks. In fact, Saudi Arabia and Qatar are attempting to reshape the entire region in order to promote their own regimes for another hundred years. They know that the era of monarchy is long since over. The era of absolute rule is over. How are they going to maintain their own power over their countries and over the region? It is to destroy secular nationalist leaders, to destroy nation states that stand in opposition to them. And so from a very uh, broad geopolitical perspective, that's really what Saudi Arabia and Qatar are doing. Now, we also understand, though, Saudi Arabia and Qatar are merely client states of the U.S. The U.S. is really pulling the strings at the overarching level of this. So what we can say then is Saudi Arabia and Qatar are doing the dirty work of the Anglo-American establishment, that is to say, Wall Street, Washington, London primarily. Yes, exactly. And and what else is new there? But let's talk about their their own uprisings that they're they're facing right now that we are not hearing about. Absolutely. So in Saudi Arabia, this has be, this has been going on for quite a while, but there was very little coverage of it until July. In July, we had the um, the arrest of an anti regime cleric named um, Al Nimr N E M R or N I M R, and um, he was an he was or is an anti-regime Shiite cleric. Now, the Saudis would claim he's an agent of the Iranians. 
possibly. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. It's impossible to know. But in any case, he called for the end of the House of Saud, the end of the Saudi regime. That then got him arrested. This led to a protest in the eastern region. Now, I want to remember, this is an oil-rich region that is dominated by the Shiite minority. So this is clearly a battleground, not just a demographic battleground, but a resource battleground and a political one. These people are calling for very basic uh, demands, things like parliamentary rule, things like the rule of law, things like some kind of representative government. You know, in Saudi Arabia, these are absurd notions. But to the, to the, I guess, the civilized world, these seem to be very reasonable demands. Saudi Arabia, the country that is giving lessons in human rights to Syria, is then brutally repressing its own people, going so far as to murder in cold blood teenagers who are in the streets protesting, old women, children, and all the rest of it. That's what's happening in Saudi Arabia, and that's what the news won't tell you. Hypocrisy on the international stage? Why, I never. Well, indeed. Okay, let's hold it there. Once again, coming up against the break, we are talking tonight to Eric Racer of StopImperialism.com. We'll take a short breather, and we'll be back after these messages. All right, welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Once again, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to StopImperialism.com's founder and editor, Eric Dreitzer. He's also a contributor to BoilingFrogsPost.com, so I suggest people check out his work there as well. Eric, uh, let's let's move along. Let's talk about a different area of the globe that is increasingly important in this day and age because of its vast resource wealth. And I'm talking about the continent of Africa, where Secretary of State Hillary Clinton finds herself on a 10-day tour of, I believe, seven countries uh, in Africa, including uh, the most recent photo op was with Malawi President Joyce Banda. And uh, just for some background on Malawi, they recently uh, signed for a $157 million aid loan from the IMF. And they also recently instituted a very interesting policy, basically kicking out foreign ownership of businesses in the rural areas, which affects the Chinese more than anyone else, because China has set up a number of businesses in Malawi, Malawi in the last four or five years as they've established a diplomatic relations and become the largest uh, trader with uh, with Malawi, the largest trading nation. So uh, I, I personally see a lot of the undertones of the, the China Cold War, really, uh, of battle for resources in Africa behind this trip and some of the places that Clinton is going, some of the things that she's saying and doing. But, uh, but Eric, what's your take on this trip and what uh, Clinton is really up to? Oh, I would agree with your characterization tenfold. You know, I mean, I think that what Clinton is doing is she's trying to once again mainstream the idea that China is in Africa to exploit Africa, to exploit Africans for nefarious reasons. Um, she made a statement in Senegal saying something to the effect, and I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but something to the effect of the uh, the 21st century is a century where people cannot just come into Africa and exploit it at will. Funny that she would say that considering what was happening in the 1990s under her husband's administration in Central Africa and what's going on today vis-a-vis the Congo and all of the rest of that region. But in any case, it was clear that she was making the statement and directing it towards Beijing, uh, the Chinese being major players in Senegal just as they are throughout West Africa and the continent more generally. The idea then, of course, that uh, the United States somehow represents a future for Africa where China merely 
clearly represents the same old colonial past of exploitation. This is, of course, the uh, the bizarro world version of reality. This is the upside-down reality, where, in fact, the Chinese bring economic development. Sure, the Chinese do it to enrich themselves. I mean, they wouldn't... What, what impetus would they have to do it otherwise? But the reality is that China brings real economic development. Just look at the schools that they've built, look at the hospitals they've built, the factories, the irrigation systems, the infrastructure, all of the rest of that really thanks to the Chinese. What does the United States and the West bring to the table? Just aid. Aid, which is really in the form of cash handouts given oftentimes to brutal dictators who are subservient to the United States. So um, in any case, the comment really upset Beijing. They have, in fact, called in one of the U.S. top diplomats to kind of reprimand the United States, I guess, officially. And, of course, why shouldn't they be upset? This is essentially attacking their entire uh, foreign policy in Africa and trying to make them into the bad guys. Now, that we've seen this over and over and over again. One of the ways that the United States has done this by leveraging the African Union, promising that they will take away certain aid uh, packages that they offer the African Union if they bend to the will of China. So um, recently we saw in Mozambique, for example, a gas find, major natural gas field. The Chinese come in, they want a part of the gas field, and they'll, they'll finance and build the pipeline themselves. Where's the United States on this question? Non-existent. So this is really to counter many other instances of what I've just described. The Chinese coming in with economic development, the U.S. being unable to compete. So we saw that uh, with Clinton in Senegal. And one of the best examples of this in all of Africa and really all the world is where she just was, and that is in the Sudan. Sudan is the perfect example because it's already been carved into two countries by the United States and the Western powers – for the purposes of dislodging China, one of China's most uh, strongest allies in the region, taking away the oil wealth, which much of which is in the south, and essentially putting it in the hands of um, the Kir regime, K-I-I-R, which is essentially a regime made up of war criminals and rebels who had been attacking civilians for decades. So um, the U.S. policy is support any government that they can wrap around their finger and go after any country that is at all friendly with China. If you look at what's happening in Nigeria, for, for example, what's, what's the major move there? The Boko Haram terrorist organization, which is going after the Christians, fomenting a civil war. And who's the biggest, who's the biggest stakeholder in Nigeria? Still the Chinese. So uh, we see the pattern over and over again. I think you'd have to be blind not to see it. Unfortunately, a lot of the public are blind and dead to the extent that they even know that Clinton is in Africa, probably won't know the, the history behind some of these stops. But one that I'm sure will at least raise a few eyebrows out there in the audience is uh, recently her trip to Uganda. And uh, speaking of arming and aiding thugs and dictators uh, with her visit to Ms. Ebony. And of course, she also was uh, musing on the possibility of selling drones to Uganda to help them find Joseph Kony, everyone's favorite uh, boogeyman. So uh, unfortunately, that agenda is continuing along a pace as well. Yeah, and Kony is really kind of at the bottom of the list now. Kony's kind of the that's the sexy, you know, that's the sexy veneer that you can give to that. What the what the issue is now really coming down to is this M23 rebel group in Eastern Congo. The M23 and uh, some of these other groups which are really remnants of the Rwandan genocide, the Rwandan civil war, uh, enabled by Rwanda and Uganda and the United States to try to exploit Eastern uh, Congo and commit genocide.
Absolutely. Much, much more to it than uh, than the headlines would ever give us. So, okay, let's stop there for a moment. Uh, once again, we'll come back right after these messages. Once again, talking to Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com. All right, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends, here on Republic Broadcasting. Tonight, once again, we're talking to Eric Dreitzer. His website is stopimperialism.com. And once again, I would suggest for people out there who haven't taken a listen to his podcast that you do so. It is always very much in-depth, and there's always a ton of information in each episode. So I hope people are checking that out. He's also got uh, articles on a regular basis up there on his website that I suggest you also go for some more news behind the headlines that the context and background to make sense of the headlines in the lying mainstream press and some of the recent ones, uh, Choosing Hegemony, Turkey, NATO, and the Path to War, uh, Sudan, Sudan, Protests in the Politics of Regime Change, Mali, Al-Qaeda, and the U.S. Neocolonial Agenda. Um, just so many topics there um, from a, a broader geopolitical perspective than I think you'll see on just about any other website. So once again, I hope people are checking in there on a regular basis. So Eric, uh, let's turn to uh, something uh, that's a little bit closer to home for me here in Japan, and that's uh, some of the aggression that's taking place and some of the standoff that's happening right now in the South China Sea. And it's reached a, an interesting point in the, uh, the kind of cold tension and conflict that threatens to, I suppose, to boil over into something more between China and some of its uh, neighbors, uh, the, the Philippines and Vietnam in particular, over some of the disputed parts of the South China Sea. And uh, we've even seen the International Crisis Group, everyone's favorite uh, organization that's come out of nowhere to stick its nose everywhere around the world, come out with its own report on this, the uh, its own unbiased and completely uh, uh, you know, non-partisan report on what should be happening there. Let's Let's talk a little bit about this uh, this conflict. What's behind it, and where really the, you think this is heading? Sure. Well, at a at a very basic level, um, people need to understand that the South China Sea is perhaps one of the most, if not the most, strategically critical part of the world, really, and particularly for the Chinese. Um, the Chinese see the South China Sea as in their backyard, not necessarily saying that they claim the entire sea to be theirs, but they have long-standing policy that the nine-point line and you know the various other. Um, I guess we could say the, the the Chinese map as they see it, but at a at a broader level, the South China Sea is believed to be the second biggest uh, gas field anywhere in the world, and it is mostly untapped, almost entirely untapped. So the the, the possibilities for resources and wealth alone make it strategically critical. Besides that. Um, a huge percentage of world commercial tanker traffic goes through the South China Sea and through the Straits of Malacca every year. So uh, the, the Chinese, who are so uh, dependent on exports and their manufacturing getting to markets, they have to be able to control their sea lines of communication. We remember back to 2005, the String of Pearls as it was called by the U.S. Army War College, they essentially said that the Chinese would do whatever it took to guarantee those lines of communication. So the the desire of the Chinese to control the South China Sea is really part of their basic strategy of growing their economic influence. Now, naturally, the United States, through various proxy countries, um, I wouldn't necessarily say Vietnam is a total proxy country, but they're moving in that direction for the United States. The Philippines, naturally, is a client state of the U.S. 
U.S., these two countries are being used essentially as uh, agents of the U.S. trying to subvert Chinese control or Chinese domination of that region. I'll give I'll give a basic analysis in the following way. The Chinese and the U.S. have a major difference of opinion as to how to deal with these territorial disputes. The Chinese want to resolve these on a bilateral basis. So China and Vietnam got a problem. China and Vietnam will sit down and resolve the problem. China and the Philippines, same thing. The U.S. rejects this model. The U.S. prefers to use the ASEAN group. As the, as the sort of the platform through which they're going to have conflict resolution and essentially having China, um, sort of collectively bargaining, if you will, with all of the countries at once. Naturally, the United States wants this because the U.S. can dominate the ASEAN group. The U.S. is a very powerful presence in that group, which it cannot have in bilateral relations. So that is sort of the, the international relations angle of this. I would also add that um, the Chinese are not necessarily claiming that these countries have no legitimate rights to anything in the South China Sea. All they're claiming is that Vietnam or the Philippines can't simply annex islands whenever they see fit and can't just make statements, make claims over waters that are not territorial waters. So the Chinese are very upset about the way in which the United States is meddling. And you mentioned the International Crisis Group. I would also point out to people, just so that they remember, the International Crisis Group is Brzezinski and George Soros. I mean, that is the George Soros-funded group. So they really do represent one major faction of the U.S. intelligence establishment. And if you read their reports, what are they saying? They're saying that the U.S. is totally out of control there. They're, they're saying that the United States needs to back off from China. Otherwise, they're going to draw China's ire. So I think that at a very sort of general level, that's kind of what's happening. You also see the Chinese trying to assert uh, dominance in the region when we look at a country like Cambodia. Cambodia refused to sign on to any statement made in the ASEAN regarding territorial disputes. Cambodia has been seen as um, in the Chinese sphere of influence and so entirely dependent on China that they wouldn't dare sign on to a statement that would be inflammatory to the Chinese. So ASEAN itself is splitting apart those who are siding with the United States on the South China Sea question, those who are siding with China. And um, the last point I would just add, remember, the Chinese are the only party in the world that is currently extracting gas out of the South China Sea. If you want to undermine China's economic future, you undermine China's access to South China Sea gas, and that's what the United States is doing. Absolutely right. There's very obviously some geostrategic importance to this area and what's going on there. But let's take a moment to dwell on what the International Crisis Group actually said about this situation. In their report, they did their best to try to say, well, everyone's to blame for this. Both sides have uh, have their share of the blame. So the answer is to strengthen regional uh, organizations to give them more teeth to actually resolve these issues. Talking, looking, of course, at ASEAN. And as you point out, ASEAN is, is falling apart. Um, in fact, for the first time in in 45 years, their recent meeting in, in Phnom Penh, uh, they failed to issue a, a declaration, a joint declaration about uh, about their meeting. Um, a, a pretty significant, I think, failure on the point part of ASEAN. So it does show that the, there are a lot of internal differences going on here, and it does show that uh, that certainly uh, Soros, who is, as you say, uh, through the Open Society Institute, one of the fo- founders uh, funders of the uh, the Crisis Group, but also Carnegie Corporation, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, um, BPA Chevron. 
Enron, Shell. I mean, all of the usual suspects are involved in funding the crisis group. And it goes to show that they are, of course, interested in building up that regional governmental body and trying to give it more teeth. So what is uh, what is the real strategy behind this and how likely is it to play out in their favor? Well, I, I I don't see the um I don't see the elites or the oligarchy or whatever as any kind of a monolithic entity, and I know you don't either. Um, it's important to remember the factional infighting that is constantly going on. You do have a faction in the ruling establishment that would love to just go after the Chinese all the time and do whatever they can to subvert them and see what happens out of that. I mean, that is really a strain that exists in the elite, particularly in the United States. Um, but I think that the Soros group and the International Crisis Group. What they're looking at is a much broader vision. They talk about this pivot. Uh, if you read the white papers, the pivot to Asia is what they constantly refer to. And what this really is on its surface is moving uh, 10% additional military forces into the Pacific region. But at a much broader level, this is a gradual ratcheting up of the pressure against China. It is something that would go on for decades, something to go into the middle of the 21st century where the U.S. shifts its attention to the containment of China. Uh, let us not forget also that the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Shanghai Five, the uh, the BRICS, these are international institutions which have grown up really in the last 10 years and emerged as um, a, a very real alignment against the power, uh, the power of Washington and Wall Street and London. And this is precisely what the International Crisis Group wa- and groups like it want to try, want to move away from. They don't want to see the SCO and the BRICS grow to rival NATO. So what they want is to push things like ASEAN, which can be controlled, other groups which they can control. So it's part of establishing Chinese containment and uh, dominance in the region over a much longer time scale than we might even be thinking. Uh, moreover, they're perfectly happy to see countries like the Philippines destroy any chance that they might have at mutually beneficial economic arrangements with the Chinese. They're perfectly happy to watch the people in Vietnam stay in poverty and live uh, in in abject poverty in that country because the Chinese won't do business there. So uh, this is part, again, of this broad strategy of trying to manipulate countries and pulling them out of the Chinese sphere of influence, one which seems to grow further and further out every time that we talk. Uh, Another example that I would point to, though it's not on the South China Sea, is Myanmar. Myanmar has become a real battleground for influence between China and the United States. You have on the one hand the, the, the government of Myanmar and the Myotsone Dam project and the oil gas pipelines and all of these major projects which, which the Chinese are, are bringing. On the other hand, the United States and the British support Aung San Suu Kyi, the National Endowment for Democracy, the NGOs that operate in Myanmar that are working to destroy the Chinese economic investments. So uh, that's one example. I think Myanmar is a microcosm of the proxy war that we're seeing all throughout Asia trying to control the region which everyone in the world knows is the engine for economic progress in the 21st century. Right. Well, on the note of the South China Sea, the, at the most literal level, of course, it is it is somewhat of a naval conflict and a question of who has naval superiority in the area. And of course, China is very much building up its arsenal in that respect and is getting set to commission its first aircraft carrier, which it's been testing out for the past year almost now. Um, and some pretty significant uh, changes are coming in the in the terms of Chinese naval uh, technologies. But also on that note, I notice you have posted up an interesting story. Uh, Russia seeks 
naval bases in Cuba and Vietnam. Tell us a little bit about this story. Well, basically, the Russians um, are looking to reestablish a naval foothold in places where the Soviets had had one, which they no longer do. So a place like Cuba, a place like Vietnam, former communist allies of the Soviet Union, Putin and the Russian government is looking to spread uh, back into there. Now, are they looking to build huge naval facilities? No. These will likely be some kind of resupplying facilities or some other form of non-combat related uh, bases. But even still, very significant development because the Russians, just like the Chinese, understand that the U.S. has dominated the seas now for decades, uh, just as the British did before them. But without, an, without a naval presence, you can't do what the Russians are doing in Syria, for example. Check NATO's aggression. If we remember, Libya, I think, is a real good indicator of what they of the lesson that was learned by the Russians. They could not prevent an invasion of Libya, an, uh, a marine-based landing through the Mediterranean Sea. Impossible to do. In Syria, on the other hand, with the naval base at Tartus, the Russians are able to ward off a NATO invasion. I think it's quite clear that they've learned the lesson. You have to have naval facilities. The Chinese are the same. The Chinese are looking at naval facilities all throughout the Indian Ocean, Sri Lanka, the uh, the Seychelles um, archipelago, all the way towards all the way towards Africa. So the naval conflict is an important aspect, but don't kid yourselves. The United States is head and shoulders and and torso and feet above everybody else. The Chinese, the Russians, they're nowhere near competing with the United States in terms of naval dominance. So instead. Uh, uh, instead of looking at it as a naval conflict, it's really, again, is about influence. The U.S. has its navy position there because the U.S. influences through force. The Chinese and the Russians are just getting to that point. Right now, they're looking to influence with, uh, with economic power, and that's what the Chinese have in abundance. I certainly do. All right. Well, I've been peppering you with questions and and leading things along, but I know you're always uh, looking at all different parts of the globe and and places like Pakistan, what's happening in Iran, etc., etc. What have you got your eyes on right now and what else are you working on for the podcast this week? Well, there's a few things that um, that I would be happy to discuss. I think the first one that I want to call people's attention to because it's really just kind of starting out, this is the protest movement in Sudan. I wrote an article on the subject, and this is one that we need to know because uh, – Oftentimes we find we can't really name the names. We can't put faces to who's doing what. We can only just kind of see the shadows. Well, in Sudan, we can name the names. The Sudan Revolts, those of you who are on Twitter, hashtag Sudan Revolts, and you will see an entire movement surrounding this concept of the revolt against Bashir. But if you dig even a little bit, what you find is that the majority of the protest movement is being funded by this thing called the Enough Project. And the Enough Project is a partnership. This is a partnership between uh, John Prendergast. John Prendergast was the head of the National Security Council, uh, the Africa part of the National Security Council. He's bosom buddies with Susan Rice. He uh, he is one of the great proponents of R2P, the Responsibility to Protect Doctrine. So Prendergast is the head of the Enough Project, but the public face of it is George Clooney. Clooney sells the Enough Project to the literati of Hollywood and to the Many of many of them being well-meaning liberals who think that they're you know contributing to a good cause, but in reality, the enough project is there for regime change. And I, in my article on the subject, I ran through all of these connections. One of the things the Enough Project has done has been the the number one most vociferous supporter of South Sudan. 
South Sudan and the government of Salva Kiir, the government which emerged out of a terrorist organization. Don't kid yourselves about South Sudan. That is what it is. It is a proxy state of the U.S. and Israel and, you know, perhaps other powers in the West. Um, and so... What's What we see in Sudan is the following. About a month and a half ago, you had a protest movement begins, a real protest movement, one that was in response to certain austerity measures that the Bashir government was putting in place. Those measures had to counteract a tremendous amount of inflation, which was caused by South Sudan being pulled away from North Sudan and not having access to the oil fields anymore, the number one economic driver for the country. So um, real protests that emerge, as we saw in Tahrir Square, as we saw elsewhere in the Arab Spring, but almost immediately it was taken over. And instead of things like, um, you know, gas shortages and food subsidies and that all of a sudden the issue became regime change. And this is the signature of the Enough Project, the signature of Prendergast, who has been calling now for decades the uh, the overthrow of the Bashar, uh, the Bashir regime. So um, the the uh, opposition, the political opposition, a lot of political hacks working in Sudan who have been, you know, um, oppressed by the Bashir government. All of a sudden, they emerge out of the woodwork to support the Enough Project. And here you go. Here is the building of a movement behind the Enough Project is Clooney and Prendergast. That is the National Security Council. So that is the uh, the attempted regime change in Sudan. People need to know this because this is the model that they're using and they will continue to use it as long as the Arab Spring myth exists. If the Arab Spring myth can, can persist, you can have this kind of destabilization and subversion all over the world. But if we can explode the myth of the Arab Spring and begin to understand that revolutions are about the overthrow of the regimes and seizing power for the better, as opposed to some kind of subversive tactics, this becomes a major sea change in people's thinking. Compare Saudi Arabia and Qatar's revolution with Syria and Libya, and you'll see the difference between real revolution and fake. Absolutely. And uh, always important to, to keep in mind that George Clooney, as well as Angelina Jolie and all these other fake celebrities, are actually members of the CFR and uh, working very much with the power structure. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. All right, friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Here we are in the final few minutes of tonight's edition of the broadcast. Once again, we've been talking to Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com, a fount of knowledge and information on all sorts of geopolitical issues. So once again, I hope you will check it out, and the, the link will be there in the show notes for tonight's episode, along with the video of our conversation for those li- listening out there in Radio Land. So I hope you are subscribed to the RSS feeds on CorbettReport.com, so you'll get that all shipped out to you as soon as it's available. But uh, Eric, let's just finish off tonight. I understand that you're uh, always working on Balochistan, which is a very interesting area that we've talked about before. What is some of the latest on that? Well, um, Balochistan is really important kind of in the subject that we've been talking about. So in the South China Sea, in Africa and elsewhere, we've kind of had this running theme just even in this conversation tonight about a proxy war between the United States and China, even though it's not even really a war so much as it is the game of influence. And Balochistan is really at the center of all of this. Geographically, it's at the center of it. And strategically, it's at the center of it. So Balochistan is this 
region of western Pakistan, eastern Iran, and southern Afghanistan. It is uh, believed to be very rich in minerals, in gas, in a lot of different resources, and it's also strategically located for various pipelines that are of interest to the Chinese, the Iranians, and a bunch of other countries. So Balochistan is part of the strategy of China to expand its and consolidate control over South Asia. It's also part of the U.S. strategy of containing China. So we have seen, and I've reported countless times on my show and elsewhere, about the presence of foreign intelligence agencies all throughout Balochistan and the creation of an extensive network of agents and terrorists all throughout Balochistan. And in fact, now this idea has been mainstreamed in Pakistan. You have major government figures going all the way up to the prime minister saying that there are foreign hands behind what's going on in Balochistan. The disappearances, the targeted assassinations, the killings, the um, the bombings, all of this is being orchestrated by Western interests, the imperialist powers. And in fact, this week, the interior minister Malik made the statement that, in fact, Afghanistan is serving as the training ground for dozens of terrorist organizations which are being controlled by the West. Now, he doesn't go so far as to say exactly who and exactly what, but he names the various organizations, the Baloch Liberation Army, Lashkar-e-Jangvi, the Baloch Republican Army, going so far as to even point to the fact that Harbiar Mari and Braham Dagbukti, two of these leaders, are directly connected to MI6 and CIA. This is now an understood fact. Mossad, CIA, MI6, RAW, which is Indian intelligence, all of these agencies are involved in Balochistan. And we had the report in March of 2011. The peninsula in Qatar reported this. It's now a fact as well in mainstream publications that the United States, the CIA, under Petraeus, is giving $500 monthly payments to a network of agents all throughout Balochistan to be informants, to be double agents, to be, you know, countless other things that they're doing there. Malik, the interior ministry, now made the statement publicly in Pakistan. What does this tell us? It tells us the shifting nature of the relations between the U.S. and Pakistan. Even 10 months ago, Pakistan would never make public statements implicating the United States in terrorist operations in Balochistan. Now that's exactly what we see. The growing rift between the U.S. and Pakistan, and and conversely, Pakistan moving ever closer to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, means that these things are now being put out in the open. So we know through Foreign Policy magazine that Jundala organization is controlled and operated by the CIA and the Mossad. We know that the BLA and the BRA and some of these other groups are part of the separatist movement dominated by the CIA and the Mossad and Western intelligence and the MI6, of course, to control the region. All right, we're going to have to leave it right there. We're fresh out of time. Eric Dreitzer, StopImperialism.com. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you, James.